I'm a big believer of maintenance driving improved outcomes. But what I'm not a believer of is that you need maintenance until progression. I think for all the topics that we've ever discussed, this is going to be the one area that we see differently. And I'm going to be the typical American by saying, if a little is good, more is better. <laughs> Lymphoma and Myeloma Connect is an initiative of Core2Ed. This podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from Carrier Farm Therapeutics. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' academic institution or the rest of the Lymphoma and Myeloma Connect group. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the Core to Ed website. Hello, and welcome to this podcast series on multiple myeloma. My name is Dr. Joshua Richter. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at the Tisch Cancer Institute, Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York, New York and the Director of Myeloma at the Blavatnik Family Chelsea Medical Center at Mount Sinai. And I'm joined with Dr. Karthik Ramasamy. Thank you, Joss. Exciting to chat about uh, myeloma with you as always. Uh, my name is Karthik Ramasamy. I'm a consultant hematologist as well as Associate Professor of Hematology at uh, Oxford University uh, Hospitals, uh, UK. In these two podcast episodes, uh, Josh and myself will discuss how we go about choosing treatment regimens for patients with multiple myeloma. In this episode, we will focus on newly diagnosed myeloma patients. In the second episode, we will discuss treatment selection in the relapse refractory setting. Let's start to talk about selecting the best approach uh, for treatment in newly diagnosed myeloma patients, Josh. So I guess the first thing to, to really think about is when we see a patient diagnosed with myeloma, what are the key factors we consider when deciding how do we start treating this particular patient? So I want to invite your views about this particular issue. Well, thank you so much. And as always, a pleasure to chat. You know, I think you and I have chatted over uh, the years and we have uh, a lot of agreements, a few disagreements, but uh, I think we see eye to eye on a lot of this. And at least on this side of the pond, you know, in 2021, we would still say upfront at initial diagnosis is somebody transplant eligible or transplant ineligible. And, and not that there are any firm and hard rules about what you can or cannot do, except kind of the two main things I keep in the back of my head is, you know, if we're going to take someone to auto transplant, I don't give them melphalan as part of their conditioning upfront therapy. And if we're going to collect stem cells, I try not to give more than four to six cycles of lenalidomide as part of their treatment. But other than that, deciding is the patient fit or frail, old or young. And at least from my standpoint, I think many patients uh, benefit from the potential to get stem cell transplant. So I collect stem cells on almost all of my patients. And, you know, I, I still think it's a big question of, do we still need to be planning this way for upfront therapy? Uh, wondering how do you approach uh, this topic? Yeah, that's a very good point, Josh. Uh, I mean, obviously, we, we take a more classical approach. We try and define as much as possible. As you know, there are no hard rules about uh, who would be transplant eligible, but clearly performance status, organ function uh, makes a, a key clear determination about who we would transplant. But once we would take that approach, uh, clearly we would take uh, stem cells from all these patients. 
But I do have a question for you. Would you have that same view for all patients, you know, irrespective of genetic background you're dealing with, high risk versus standard risk? Exact same approach or different? So uh, I think it's a really great one. I think that for transplant eligible, for the younger, fitter patients, you know, I, I think transplant really should be considered for everyone. What changes for me if they're high risk up front is, am I going to consider something like KRD as part of their initial approach? You know, I think at least in the United States, VRD has been the standard. And then the ongoing questions of, is KRD better than VRD for some, or do we need to get to a quadruplet, which we'll talk about shortly. But to me, if you are high risk and young, I tend to be very forward with the KRD regimen. How about yourself? Yeah, that's a very, very good point. Uh, we do feel our hands are tied with the choice that we can make uh, with these treatment regimens. But I'm increasingly concerned we're playing off the same playbook for both uh, groups of patients when we know that the outcomes are going to be significantly different about how long they're going to stay in remission. So I'll be keen to uh, you know, personalize the approach in the future, but you're, you're quite right. I think we are still uh, tied to a single template of approaching their care at the moment. Yeah, no, I, I, I think to me, the one thing that has really impacted my selection of upfront therapy is merely more for the older transplant ineligible patients. You know, I think for many years, some variation of Velcade Revlimidexamethasone has been given uh, regardless of age. And, you know, we colloquially refer to them as RVD light or VRD light if we're giving it once weekly or lower dose. But with the Maya regimen, daratumumab, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone uh, having such impressive response rates and being relatively so well tolerated, uh, I've really moved towards utilizing that regimen in some of the patients who are clearly too old to get high-dose therapy or too many comorbidities. And I don't know if that regimen has impacted your, um, your approach as well. Clearly, I think you, we're starting to bridge the gap there. And particularly when we used a fixed duration therapy for transplant ineligible folks, uh, there were people who were progressing too early. You're quite right. Uh, the kind of VRD light type combination or data Lendex have really bridged the gap here. And, uh, and, and then you have to ask yourself the question with the improved uh, uh, outcomes, clinical outcomes, both PFS and OS that's been shown, you know, what more are we going to achieve? And are we going to just set these guys back for three or four months with uh, heavy duty intensive therapy? So you're, you're quite right. I mean, all of that is kind of, kind of creeping in. But I live and hope that we start to personalize things uh, based on their genetic background uh, with the improving combinations that we're having. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, I, I think one of the things that we talk about a lot with cancer care in general is goals of care. You know, when we set out at the beginning, what are we trying to achieve? And, you know, I, I'm very interested to hear your thoughts. You know, is it MRD or bust in the upfront setting? Do we have to get everyone down to the zero level? And does it matter how we get there? I'm, I'm fascinated to hear your thoughts. I mean, clearly, I mean, we're both seeing quite a lot of data about MRD negativity being a very deep level of, of remission state. But you and I know in clinical practice, when we start treating folks, I mean, we do end up with uh, quite a lot of adverse events uh, that folks pick up along the way. So it is a challenge. I mean, I think it can be one of those holy grails that you can walk towards. 
but we know our patients better. And it's this constant conversation that we have in our clinics about, you know, what are we trying to achieve here based on what has been achieved to, uh, you know, how a person is feeling because important other clinical factors come into play, particularly our folks, vast majority of them are in the, around the age of 70. In some cases, myeloma becomes less of an issue. Their heart becomes a problem or their kidney becomes a problem or something else becomes a problem. So I'd quite like to think that I want to get all my folks into a very good remission state, but I don't think that could be the driver for everybody. We have to personalize care when it comes to that. I think your point is absolutely perfect. I could not agree more. Uh, I'm a big believer in the Goldilocks phenomenon pretty much everywhere. You know, yes, MRD negative is great, but we have to balance that by too much you know, toxicity. And there are probably some patients we've seen with some of our older therapies before we had this MRD technology, people that we never got rid of all of their power protein and stayed in remission for years. So I, I think you and I see very much eye to eye on this. And, and actually, I think this is a, a wonderful transition to one of the topics I, I knew we wanted to touch on, which is, you know, what do we need up front? Is, is the three drug standard still the way to go? Is it four drugs? Is, does everyone need a quadruplet? And I know there's some differences between, you know, in, in the UK or, or the US, but I would love to know your thoughts on, you know, triplets, quads, uh, is the future five drugs? Yeah, very, very good point, Josh. So clearly, I think we are in some agreement that what we're trying to do early on in these patients is to try and get a treatment combination going, which gives them deeper remissions. What I find with the Cassiopeia data set is that the addition of datatumumab to VTD clearly drives a significantly high MRD negative rates uh, in this patient population. You've also shown in a US study with Griffin with data VRD that you can get a quadruplet treatment combination going that achieves MRD negative in, in a group of patients. The question that remains in my head is, do you always need four drugs for all patients to kind of get to MRD negativity? That is the question that I have in my head, because you know that there are a proportion of patients, even with triplet combinations, who get to MRD negativity. So uh, to me, it's about not just thinking of add more drugs as much as you can. It's about understanding who are the folks we can get away with three drugs, because often we find the particular three drug combination, if it has less adverse effects, that's preferred over having a four drug combination. So I'm sorry, I'm taking a philosophical approach, but you know, you, you try to understand that we can't just be throwing everything at every patient. No, I, I, I think for the philosophical approach is wonderful. This is a data-free zone. There's a lot of interesting data that's coming along. And I think your point is perfect. How do we use all of these big studies to personalize it to the patient in front of us? You know, the Griffin data has been quite impressive. You know, one of the MRD negative rates are through the roof. But to your point, does everybody need four drugs? And when you start adding four drugs, besides just general toxicities, you know, I know from my experience, we've been having some more difficulty collecting stem cells in patients who receive daratumumab-based regimens up front. You know, I think we all think of monoclonal antibodies like rituxan, CD20, but daratumumab, which targets CD38, CD38's on everything. So we've had some difficulty collecting stem cells. You know, I almost used the Griffin regimen a little bit like I used VRD in the old days. And when I mean the old days, 
you know, the IV bortezomib days. We were worried about giving IV Velcade because of the high risk of neuropathy. So some of the patients, we'd start off with Revdex, and if they were suboptimally responding, we'd then add the IV Velcade. I find myself giving RVD to a number of patients, and if they're under-responding, I then add the DARA as opposed to just doing it up front. So I don't know if you've had similar thoughts about, you know, staggering this if they're suboptimally responding. Yeah, my my concern um, very much is uh, I like the fact that adding data to map has resulted in a deeper response, high MRD negative, but it it does have some additional toxicity attached to it. You know, particularly uh, folks have higher levels of infection, uh, and and that's been a concern. We've not consistently used DARA combination prior to stem cell collection, but that's the place that we kind of get to, and uh, we are concerned because uh, Niels van der Donk has presented some data which clearly shows that there is a reduction in stem cell collection numbers. So I'm going to take the view that, you know, four drug combinations do appear to be more beneficial, but I'm going to continue to feel that if there are good three drug combinations which have less adverse events and can achieve the same that four drugs can achieve, then I would prefer that. I think that's actually... uh a perfect segue into actually the next topic, which is, you know, maintenance therapy. I think that we've kind of had these arguments back and forth across the years, fixed duration versus continuous therapy. And at least, you know, the big trial that comes to mind, uh, the first trial looking at uh, melphalan prednisone thalidomide versus Lendex and showing that continuous therapy was better. And now that we have better tolerated therapies, we can give someone treatment until progression or intolerance. Um, but I guess the question comes up for those that we take either to autograft uh, or patients that we don't take to autograft on the other end of induction, you know, how do we approach maintenance therapy? And, and I guess we'll start off with the, the straightforward ones. After transplant, uh, do you do maintenance? And if so, how do you kind of delineate uh, your options? Absolutely. Uh, we do do uh, lenalidomide maintenance. Uh, in the, in the UK, and uh, certainly, I'm a big believer of maintenance driving uh, improved outcomes. But what I'm not a believer of is that you need maintenance until until progression. Uh, and I'm uh, keenly awaiting uh, the American segment of the VRD uh, trial followed by lenalidomide maintenance. Uh, I do have m- much persuasion to do to keep people on lenalidomide maintenance uh, forever. And for that particular reason, I am very keen on seeing augmented maintenance. And the reason why I want to see augmented maintenance is principally the way I'm thinking. If you are going to deepen the MRD negativity and sustain the MRD negativity, I'd rather do that with an augmented maintenance for a defined duration of time rather than tell my folks you have to stay on maintenance forever and then keep coming to my practice every month to to pick medicines up. That's my view. I'm interested in view about uh, continuous maintenance. Well, uh, you know, I I think for all the topics that we've ever discussed, this is going to be the one area that we see differently. And I'm going to be the typical American by saying, if a little is good, more is better. So I am definitely of the camp of maintenance uh, forever. I think that my standard approach is lend maintenance for everyone. Uh, At least the follow-up so far from the stamina 0702 trial seems that keeping them on longer is better than fixed. However, that big MRD question is out there. If you achieve sustained MRD negativity, 
Do you still need to be on maintenance? I don't know the answer. My guess is that there are probably a subset of patients who achieve sustained MRD negativity. So MRD negative a year apart, uh, both being negative. If you have standard risk, my guess is that you could probably stop, but I don't know. I agree that augmented maintenance is, is kind of the wave of the future. I do like some of the uh, data from the Forte trial about kyprolis and revlimid maintenance, although I could tell you in the US, nobody is going to use kyprolis as a maintenance. It's hard to get through. We're using a lot of daratumumab and lenalidomide in combination uh, for maintenance therapy. But uh, right now, I'm still of the camp. I just keep you on as long as possible. Uh, but you know, time may tell that uh, I'm being too much of a glutton here and giving too much treatment. Well, let me ask you um, uh, a, a different way to see if you have a different view. You plug and play um, upfront in your induction regimen, more and more better regimens, and you get more and more MRD negativity as you keep filtering through. Would you have the same view about continuous maintenance therapy until until disease progression? I mean, what about MRD negative patients five years out? Still maintenance? So I, I, you know, this is actually a conversation that some of my mentors here at my institution and I, we have a friendly disagreement about. So, you know, I've had the privilege of working with people like Bart Barlogi and Sundar Jagannath. And, you know, uh, I think Sundar would say, yes, you know, MRD negative after five years, you may be cured. We can stop some of this. I am still, you know, what I tell people is I don't know if the therapy I'm keeping you on is exactly what's needed to hold those few cells under control. I am still of the belief that myeloma is a biological construct and MRD is an arbitrary line in the sand. You know, we're at 10 to the fifth or sixth in, in this year. Next year, maybe 10 to the seventh. You know, what was MRD negative 100 years ago? Not having a giant tumor sticking out of your head. But at some point, we may know exactly who can stop and who cannot. And until then, my conversations with the patients are, I don't know if you could stop. And I apologize to them. I say, listen, if I've kept you on therapy for five years and five years from now, we you could have been off. I apologize. But I still don't know yet who is safe to take off. Very, very good. Uh, we will continue to debate this topic over the years, Josh, uh, I, I, you know, with interest. Good. OK, so really um, amazing uh, discussion we've had so far. It's been a real pleasure discussing uh, with you all these topics, uh, Josh. So. Um, from what we've discussed, the key takeaways uh, for us is we still have that clear distinction between transplant versus no transplant. We collect stem cells, and that's an important approach that may change in the time to come, but that's an important approach. Uh, the second takeaway is we still can't differentiate who would need triplet or who would need quartz. Certainly, uh, four drug regimens are driving outcomes, and uh, maybe that is the way that we would go. But if there are good three drug regimens which give the same desired outcome, we would prefer that. We certainly disagree between continuous versus fixed duration maintenance. Uh, but uh, it's good that at least you agree with me that augmented maintenance has a role to play. And maybe that can change your views. <laughs> Anything you want to add to this? Um, no, I think you covered it beautifully. I, I think uh, things that we both hinted on is the nature of risk stratification kind of playing into this. I, I agree with you that we don't have the granularity yet to say which approach is needed for which patient, but I think we're on the precipice of starting to understand 
you know, who really needs the long-term therapy and who doesn't, who really needs the quad and who doesn't. And a lot of this will probably be driven by cytogenetic risk. So I'm very excited about what's coming down the pike with some of the tools we have in our toolbox today. Brilliant. Karthik, thank you very, very much for this uh, lovely discussion. Uh, before we close, I invite you all to listen to the other episode of this podcast series as well to learn more about treatment selection in the relapsed refractory setting. The full series is available on lymphomaconnect.info and on your preferred podcast platform. This Lymphoma and Myeloma Connect podcast was brought to you by CoreToEd Independent Medical Education. Please visit coretoed.com for more information.